Really excited to be here with you this morning. If you're uh, visiting with us, I want to send a, just uh, extend a special welcome to you. Uh, if you've been away for a while and are returning after vacation or being sick or other things, I want to extend a special welcome back to you. It's good to see each of you this morning. And I want to ask you to take your Bible, please, and meet me in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John chapter 20. And again, there are extra Bibles provided for you under the seats, and so if you need one, by all means, please help yourselves. One thing about life, we've already even sung along these lines. We've sung uh, uh, similar themes. One thing about life is that highs and lows go hand in hand. Same with life in Christ. As much as we may assume or would like to think that life with Jesus is nothing but good times, this just isn't the case. But thankfully, life with Jesus assures us that Jesus walks with us in both the good and the less than good as we perceive it. Think about the resurrection, for instance. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was monumental, obviously. And without this historic event, we would be hopelessly lost and our faith would be worthless. That's why we celebrate Easter as we do, why Easter Sunday is typically the biggest and best on the annual church calendar. But what are we to do with the reality of Christ's resurrection Uh, on the other 364 days of the year? What do we do when the highs of Easter Sunday meet the lows of everyday life? When a particular sin continues to tempt you and you feel weak and unable? When you've been betrayed or bad-mouthed And thoughts of vengeance enter your mind. When you're struggling in your marriage and it seems impossible to love one another as God designed. When you're facing yet another trying situation at school or at work and it seems you have no reserves left. When you lay at bed at night, at night, wondering how you'll face tomorrow. Or, as one pers- person put it, what will you do with Easter once Easter is gone? As much as I believe in the triumph of Christ's resurrection, and I do... We must be honest. It can be a real struggle to grab on to victory when in the throes of apparent defeat. 
And in John chapter 20, we learn of a man who knew this struggle well. Surely you've heard of him. Many who don't even attend church know of him. His name is Thomas. He was one of the original 12 disciples, one of those closest to Jesus. And for the week that followed that first Easter Sunday, Thomas lived with a desperately fragile faith. Others rejoiced, but not Thomas. Not yet. His faith wavered on the brink of apparent collapse. Poor Thomas. I'm sure he'd never, I'm sure he never thought he'd be the face of doubt. Maybe that's you this morning. Someone you know. Maybe you find your faith wavering today. Maybe the exuberance of Christ's resurrection isn't affecting you as it seems to be affecting those around you. Maybe there's a disconnect between new life in Christ and the very real struggles of your everyday life. Maybe you're wrestling with doubt, as Thomas was. This passage is for those who felt the tension between faith and faithlessness, the grueling tug of war between belief and unbelief. It's for those who know life's highs and lows very well, for by providing this picture of Thomas, God shows how he desires to meet us and call us to trust him still. Sometimes, please hear this, sometimes the very real struggle for faith is what strengthens faith. And so let's read this passage together. John chapter 20. I'll read from verse 19 through the end of the chapter, verse 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. (laughs) Probably the biggest understatement, one of them. (laughs) Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. 
And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you again for this time at which we can gather. Maybe a better way to say this would be thank you for drawing us into your presence. Thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for the assurance of your presence at all times in all places. Thank you for the unique joy uh, that we enjoy in your presence when we come together. And even this morning, as I look out onto the faces and into the eyes of these dear people, each one very dear to me, and certainly very, very, very dear to you. Even as I see them and know some of their stories, I know and we confess that we come with mixed emotions and feelings and thoughts this morning. We come from many and varied circumstances. We come, many of us, on the tales of a week that has seemingly done us in. And there are people here in this room seated in these chairs, Father, who are wrestling to believe. So thank you for thank you for your word that uh, provides this picture of the encounter between Jesus and Thomas. Thank you for all that it means and implies. Thank you for the time we have now to look at it more closely. And I pray that as we do, you would help us to see ourselves better and be more honest Help us to see Jesus better and clearer. Help us to hear your voice as you speak truth into our lives, that we may leave this place stronger than when we came in, more encouraged and more empowered to go out in Jesus' name. And in his name we pray, amen. So it was the night of Christ's crucifixion. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was the night of Christ's resurrection. It's the night of Christ's resurrection. The disciples were afraid. 
all of them. Jesus was gone, and their expectations of Jesus, whatever they were, had had been long since obliterated. Even with news of the empty tomb, they didn't understand what was happening. Even though Peter and John had seen the empty tomb with their own eyes, still they were trying to piece things together. Even after Mary Magdalene reported that she had seen and spoken with the risen Jesus, the disciples were struggling for faith. Verse 19 says they hid behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Apprehensive and anxious, they probably thought they were next to be targeted. Not until Jesus came to them them, did they find peace. Not until He met with them, showed them His scars, called and empowered them for ministry, and ministered to them with the Holy Spirit. But Thomas wasn't there. For whatever reason, He wasn't present with the others when Jesus came at first. At some point after Jesus left, Thomas arrived and they began relaying the news. Thomas, it's true. He is alive. The tomb is empty. He came to us and spoke with us. Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And yet unconvinced and blunt honest, Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You know, those of us who live on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection... This side of the empty tomb tend to forget or neglect just how how hard it was for those first followers of Jesus to believe that he in fact died, then actually rose from the dead. I mean, we have history on our side. We have over 2,000 years of experience and compelling evidence they didn't have, though certainly the resurrection was a reality for them, for even them. It took time for it to sink in and grab hold of their lives. I'm sure you... Some of you, probably all of you, have felt exactly as Thomas did. Those moments when everyone is on the same page spiritually, except you. Everyone seems strong in faith, except you. Everyone sounds so certain while you battle uncertainty. Everyone appears to have all the answers while you have more questions than answers. You ever been on the outside looking in? That's Thomas in these moments, refusing to be carried away by his friend's testimony only. He simply wanted to experience Jesus as they already had. 
You know, the struggle for faith is not uncommon. Following Jesus does not mean never doubting. Thomas had followed Jesus for about three years, chosen by Jesus to be one of his own. Thomas knew the Lord in incredible, amazing ways. He learned of God directly from the Son of God. He saw the power of God in the miracle the miracles of Christ. He had a front row seat in the life and ministry of Jesus, yet still battled unbelief. Even those closest to the Lord struggle with doubt on occasion. You know, in his book, Messy Spirituality, Mike Iaconelli coins a phrase I appreciate. I just appreciate his honesty. It's one that captures well the tension between belief and unbelief. He calls this unspiritual growth. By which he means the kind of growth that occurs in seemingly unspiritual ways. I think Thomas, by admitting and facing his doubts, was actually growing spiritually. Though many skeptics hide behind their skepticism, that's not Thomas. Thomas wasn't using doubt to keep from believing, but to solidify belief. And on the surface, it appears very unspiritual, but underneath was a man who desired a greater, more personal, more honest relationship with Jesus. It's said that life is a marathon, not a sprint. And the life of faith is that way too. And as those who run marathons will tell you, you have to build endurance over time. So I was talking with some friends the other night, how I, as a high school freshman, I ran cross country uh, and knew right away, I mean literally from the first practice, that I was Uh, in way over my head. Uh, You know, you think they're going to kind of, it's your first practice, and you think they're going to kind of ease you in and warm you up to what's going on. But instead, uh, we had some time of stretching, and then it was the coach said, get in the van. And we all got in the van. None of us knew where we were going. That's weird. And then he, they drive us what seemed like to the other town and pulls over and says, get out, I'll meet you back at school. And we ran back. The polar opposite of quick sprints, which were more my forte, cross-country racing meant persevering through a many mild course that covered terrains of all types. It's smooth at times, yet sandy and thick with mud at others, and often there are rocks and tree limbs to navigate, and thick brush and torturous uphill climbs. And more than I care to admit, I often, often, often wondered what in the world 
am I doing? Even during a race, I was doubting if anything good could possibly come from this. But one huge key to successful long-distance running is learning how to overcome the many doubts your body is throwing at you. The life of faith is like cross-country running. Spiritual growth does not always travel on smooth and scenic routes. The course is marked by ups and downs and veers to the left and right. It doesn't follow predictable patterns or move at a predictable pace. The life of faith is nuanced and varied, necessarily so, never traveling in a perfectly straight line from points A to B. Faith is layered, textured, multidimensional. You must understand that faith, as it's defined biblically, does not come naturally to us. Just as none of us could run a marathon without training for it, neither can we overcome our doubts without facing them. And yet many of us live in doubt because we think the expression of it somehow makes us less than Christian. When in fact to lay our faith and the occasional struggles for faith before God is a good thing. Tim Keller writes, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies. Oz Guinness says, The shame is not that people have doubts, but that they're ashamed of them. In his book, The Gift of Doubt, Gary Parker writes, If faith never encounters doubt, if truth never struggles with error, if good never battles with evil, how can faith know its own power? Madeline Langell suggests, Those who believe they believe in God, hear this, Those who believe they believe in God without passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and at times even without despair, believe only in the idea of God, but not in God himself. How do you respond to doubt? Did you realize that about 60%, 60% of the Psalms are laments in some form. Raw expressions of a sometimes frail faith. So where are you struggling for faith? Identify these things. In what areas are you finding it hard to believe? Hard to believe in a positive outcome. Hard to believe in a better future. Hard to believe that God knows what He's doing. What if you began 
Some of you are already doing this. Keep doing this. What if you began to dialogue with God about your doubts instead of pretending they're not there? What if you gave voice to your uncertainties as Thomas did? Be like the psalmists and go to God with your questions and concerns. Be like the man of old who, in seeking Jesus, admitted, this guy's a hero to me. I believe. Help my unbelief. I love that man. Be like Thomas who, in wanting more of Jesus, refused to settle for second-rate faith. So let's consider what can be learned here concerning the nature of faith and how, how can we help foster faith in our own lives. In this encounter with G, uh, between Jesus and Thomas, I find four truths that teach what faith is and what faith does. Four things that teach what faith is and what faith does. Number one, faith is personal. Faith is personal. Thomas wanted his beliefs to be his, not someone else's. Unless I see, unless I place my fingers, unless I place my hand, he wanted to know Jesus personally. Thomas gave voice to the cry of his heart, and Jesus met him in his place of need. I mean, what a great window into the heart of God. Put your finger here. Thomas, give me your hand. Put your hand right here. It's me and you. It's me and you, Thomas. I'm here for you. Those who've heard my thoughts on this passage before know how I love how the heading in my Bible over this section simply reads Jesus and Thomas as if the only thing that mattered at that moment was their encounter. It's very, very personal. It was Calvin, I think, who said, faith is not a distant view but a warm embrace of Christ. Had Thomas blindly accepted the disciples' report a week earlier, it wouldn't have been his faith, but theirs. Now, there are times, absolutely, there are times when, when God strengthens our faith through the faith of another to hear how God is working in another's life reminds us that God is working in our lives too. But that's the point. For at the heart of true faith, there must be personal dealings with God. If there is no personal interaction with Jesus, 
There is no faith. Not really. Just a facade of faith. So, think through this with me. And just think to yourself. What if, instead of saying Jesus and Thomas, the section heading in our Bibles said Jesus and insert your name. What if it said Jesus and Michael? Or Jesus and Ruth? Or Jesus and Kyle? What if it read Jesus and Ray, or Michelle, or Kevin, or Beth? I mean, if this was written about you and your dealings with Jesus, how might it read? What would we learn? What would you learn about your faith? about Jesus and about your relationship with Jesus. Faith is personal. Faith in God requires personal interaction with God. Number two, faith is an act of the will. Faith is an act of the will. When Jesus told Thomas to put his finger here and his hand there, he was appealing to Thomas's will. He was calling Thomas to action. Faith is a gift from God. Yes, absolutely yes. But we must receive the gift and act on it. Faith isn't reserved for a one-time conversion experience only, as if saved by grace through faith, only to be left to ourselves. No, every day and even throughout the day, we are faced with the choice to believe God or not. When Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe, he's basically saying, don't don't allow your doubts as real and sincere as they may be to defeat what's true. Don't give doubt power it doesn't possess. You know, with God, <clears throat> I still think about a conversation I had with, with you, Elva, a couple years ago that still ministers to me, where Elva reminded me that with God, everything, not some things, with God, everything is redemptive. Everything is redemptive. Everything is working toward redemptive purposes. Everything. But in any given situation, we can choose to believe this or not. We can choose. We choose either to resign ourselves to unbelief or remember that God is doing something much larger than we can presently see or understand. Our problem is that we sometimes, that sometimes we decide not to believe, did you hear that? We decide 
not to believe for so long that we actually eat away at our capacity to believe. But what if we reverse the two by acting on that which is true? Because each time we trust God and believe, we're overcoming unbelief one time at a time. By the way, this is another reason why Christian community is so important, even why your church attendance matters. It matters for you, and it matters for those around you. There have been times... Many, many times when I have come to church at less than full capacity and, and filled with many doubts of many kinds only to be strengthened by this congregation. And by God's grace, there have been times when I have been able to strengthen those who come at less than full capacity and filled with doubts of many kinds. Christian community and the relationships we share work both ways. I think, this, I think it says something very important, very beautiful, actually. I think it says something that Thomas was still there in that room. Still with the other disciples. Even when he didn't believe them. They still mattered to him. And he still mattered to them. Go where faith grows. If you want to plant roses, don't move to the North Pole. Go where faith grows. Be at church. Read your Bible. Talk with God. Sing your cares. Sing to God. Sing some more. Jesus said, do not disbelieve, but believe. Appealing to your will, he's calling faith to act. Number three, number three. Faith perseveres. Faith grows over time. It's in process and ongoing. For three years, Jesus was cultivating Thomas's faith. The seeds had been planted, watered, cared for, tended, and in due time, they begin to take root. And I say in due time because overcoming doubt needs more than a quick fix mentality. I actually, I actually don't appreciate when someone tries to give me a quick fix for something that is going to take time to unravel and work itself out in my heart. As with Thomas, overcoming doubt often requires waiting on the Lord. The fact that eight days passed before Jesus went to Thomas is a reminder that we cannot rush faith or the faith of others. For Thomas, those eight days probably seemed like an eternity. Like David in Psalm 13, maybe he wondered, How long, O Lord, 
How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And by the way, I think it's worth noting that the faith of the other disciples was in process too. They were still hiding behind locked doors. They wrestled. They were still wrestling with fear. They were still worrying about their future. Faith isn't always easy, and yet in due time, the dark night of doubt gives way to the light of dawn. In due time, the tug of war tension subsides. In due time, I would say at just the right time, the God who knows our doubt-filled yearnings meets us, for the Lord never forsakes His own. You know, Isaiah Wright wrote, a, a bruised reed He will not break, and a faint, even, even a faintly, it's like a barely, even a barely burning wick He will not snuff out. You know, we want this faith that just is like a flame with passion, which is great. But God says, even, even just this barely, a little, little flame. I won't snuff that out. When faith runs on fumes, even then, God is faithful. And his word says to us, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Maybe some of you are waiting for God this morning. It's hard to wait. I don't want to make light of the difficulty at all. It's hard to wait. But hang in there. Don't give up. It's in that waiting period where faith perseveres and eventually prevails in due time. And then number four, faith confesses Christ as Lord. Faith is personal. Faith is an act of the will. Faith perseveres. And faith confesses Christ as Lord. Jesus showed Thomas his scars and called him to faith, at which time Thomas exclaimed, My Lord and my God. The word is kurios. The Hebrew equivalent is Adonai. It stresses that Jesus is supreme and possesses supreme authority, that he is God. But notice how Thomas says that Jesus is not simply the Lord or the God, but his Lord and his God, my Lord and my God. Now, one of, this is one of the clearest New Testament assertions on the deity of, of Christ. Thomas's statement is a clear confession of his newfound faith in Christ. You know, the Bible says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I dare say Thomas was saved that day. 
Though he had been with Jesus for a few years already, following him, learning from him, learning how to trust him, not until he believed and confessed Christ as Lord was he saved from sin and death to everlasting life with God. And that's the very reason why the Apostle John wrote this book, as verses 30 and 31 attest. John's entire purpose in writing this book is that all who read it would make a similar confession as Thomas. He wrote, John did, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So I must ask, do you believe? Do you believe? Whatever your story, whatever your background, whatever your current situation, and whatever you have thought of Jesus before now, you are here. Think about this. You are here in this room today, not by accident or coincidence, but by the hand of providence, so that you can hear from God in His Word as He now calls you to trust Him. And even to entrust your life to Him. And I want you to see how Jesus offers his scars as reason to believe. Now risen from the dead, he offers the evidence of his death to solidify your faith. Nail pierced hands and feet, a spear pierced side, each scar significant, each signifying the extent to which God has gone to to secure your rescue, each declaring God's love and desire for relationship with you, each upholding God's justice, for on Christ's cross, love and justice met to atone for sins once for all, including yours, and to give you life in Jesus' name. So when doubt threatens to undo you, and when unbelief closes in, Look to Christ. See his scars. And, can, and call him Lord, as Thomas did. I'll close with this thought from verse 29. When Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. quite a statement really Thomas and the others saw the risen Lord but here Jesus speaks of those people from all over the world from every age and background from one generation to the next people who by the millions have entrusted themselves to Christ without ever having seen him in the flesh people like us How can this be? It's by faith. It's because they've seen with the eyes of faith, which is much, much better, according to Jesus. Much more blessed.
Because faith isn't dependent on seeing Jesus physically, but on taking Jesus at his word and really trusting him. You all, blessed. That's what Jesus says. You're blessed. You're blessed in ways that Thomas and the others were not. As I said at the start, it's this, this is for those who felt that tension between belief and unbelief, who wrestled with doubt, but seek the Lord still, who know firsthand sometimes that sometimes the very real struggle for faith is actually what strengthens faith. It's for those like Thomas who knew that faith is personal and is an act of the will. That faith perseveres and confesses Christ as Lord. You know, Peter was there also. And I want to share, I want to close with a verse from Peter. Peter heard Jesus say this about the blessing that is ours, those who have not seen the Lord with physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith. Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And you do, East Parkway, you do. Your love for Jesus is amazing. And so winsome and inspiring. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen and amen. God, we thank you for tending to us this morning. Thank you that you see the heart. Oh, my goodness. We are so consumed with the outward appearances, but you see the heart. Thank you for knowing our hearts. Thank you for speaking into our hearts this morning. Please strengthen us, encourage us, and give us this joy inexpressible of which Peter speaks even as we obtain the salvation of our souls. We bless you. Amen.